Hello and welcome to the Cope Life Podcast interview series. Thank you so much, everyone who's tuning in, watching live, or if you're watching the replay. I'm super excited because I have one of my best friends ever here, Valerie Acosta Gonzalez. And what you guys don't know about her is that she's absolutely amazing and her story is very inspiring. So I'm ready to be inspired. Um, I hope you are too. And without further ado, let me introduce you to Valerie. So Val, just to get us started, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, <laughs> uh, my name is Valerie. Um, I am about to retire from the Air Force. I've been in for 19 and some years, so I'll be 20 soon. Um, I'm a mom and a sister. I am an artist, self-taught artist. I am a Russian linguist by trade, intel analyst. Um, what else? Master resiliency trainer, emotional intelligence coach. That's it. <laughs> I ran out of things. <laughs> you say that's it, but in reality, that's that's a lot. Um, and I think it really sets you up to be impactful for a lot of people. Um, so before we really dive deep, what I'm curious about is just how how you even got into emotional intelligence or resilience. Mm -hmm. Wait, that seems like a simple question, but it's very complicated. <laughs> Why you guys start with hard questions right away? Like, um, the simple answer is I was working with you. Um, <laughs> And I went to this training, but way before before I met you in 2019, um, I've always been interested in how the mind works. And I've been through a lot of therapy. And for me, the thing that has helped the most to understand myself is to learn how the brain processes emotions. Like I need to know the scientific part of things in order for me to gain enough valuable information to use it to overcome my own things so that's why i became interested in emotional intelligence um but then i went through the formal training and we went to trainings and we got certified and all that stuff that's how i got the more um academic part of it but i've always been interested in it okay yeah i, I love that because it's you know, everybody's different. And for some of us, we want to know the why. We want to know the science. What's the data? So don't just tell me it changes my brain. Tell me what actually happens in the brain. And so I felt like we really connected with that. And then for everyone that has heard me speak on emotional intelligence, you've been to one of my workshops or trainings. You viewed my, my sessions online. I have to tell you guys, I never really looked at an emotional intelligence until, until Val told me about it. So I went to training in, in a previous job, I was focused on suicide prevention and also resilience. And resilience is a part of positive psychology. But it made no sense to me that there was this big gap between suicide prevention and resilience. What is it that fills a gap? Why are these two so disconnected? And Valerie answered the question with, have you looked at emotional intelligence? And so the answer was no at the time, but now I'm an emotional intelligence life coach. And so I just give her so much credit for really helping me begin this journey of my own. Um, so without further ado, 
we know that what I do on this podcast is I introduce you to people who have gone through things that most of us, either most of us have not gone through or some of us have experienced and you want to figure out how someone else overcame that experience, right? Who else went through it? How did they feel? How did they experience it? And how did they move on? And so that's really the meat of this. And there's so many amazing parts of Valerie's story, but she's going to tell you whatever she wants to talk about, because that's how we roll here. We're authentic. We keep it real. She'll tell you what she wants to tell you. And um, with that, take take it away. I want you to tell us your story. Be authentic. Be real. And just let us have it. And wait, before you do, I'm going to put this out there. A disclaimer that I'm an emotional dude. You guys that know me know that. If she says something and I feel it, then then that's it is what it is. Because we don't fake anything on the Cope Life podcast. We're real. We're authentic. And that's how we roll. So uh, tell us your story. Oh, my God. How much time do we have? I, I mean, I could be here all day, but I don't know about the audience. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you the shortened version, um, leaving out a lot of details, I guess. Um, no, in all seriousness, um, I there's a lot of parts to my story, uh, but for the sake of brevity, I should probably concentrate on my core memories, right? So, like, people are talking about core memories lately a lot, and I've seen it all over TikTok, and they're, like, tagging moments with core memories. And when I was in the Air Force um, doing therapy, I realized that a lot of my core memories were negative memories. A lot of my core memories uh, from childhood, like starting from four years old, they were all centered around violent and very disturbing moments, right? Like I had a very traumatic childhood. Um, my parents had a for the lack of a better word, a terrible marriage. Uh, they, they were not uh, the model for successful marriage. Um, and it was a very turbulent environment that I grew up in. Um, from four years old, I can remember things being broken, uh, yelling, screaming, hiding, spying, um, a lot of things that defined my childhood, which made me grow up really fast. Um, I always did better around adults. And I think it was because of the fact that I had to grow up so so quickly. Uh, I spent a lot of time by myself as well. Um, my dad didn't really spend time with me in the house and my mom had to go to work. So I spent a lot of time in the house by myself as a child. Um, made my own meals, did my own homework by myself, learned how to do a lot of things that kids, that my own kids don't know how to do uh, at their age. So right around 10 years old, my parents, um, they were kind of half separated. Like to this day, I don't understand this arrangement. Like I slept with my mom in her room and my dad slept in my room. And then um, I found out after a while that they had been divorced, but my dad hadn't left the house. Uh, and I, the way I found out was my mom gave me this long paper. And I remember because it wasn't like a letter size paper. And she was like, here, read this. And I was like 10 years old. And these big legal words were on this paper. And I realized that it was my parents' divorce decree. 
So that's how I found out my parents were divorced. Um, I just thought they didn't like each other. And eventually my dad would leave, but I didn't know they had been divorced and living together. Um, and right around that same time, when I was 10 years old, um, we had a tragedy in our family. So my dad's, my dad's brother, he was the happiest guy I knew. He was funny. He was my favorite uncle. He was um, a computer programmer. I learned a lot from him. A lot of the things that I know about computers, I learned from him. I used to spend a lot of time with him. And um, he was having trouble with his wife at the time. And she kicked him out of the house. Um, he, I don't know what happened, but he kidnapped her. I don't know what happened in his brain is what I mean. But he kidnapped her. Um, he murdered her. And then he killed himself. Um, that was very, very traumatic. It was something that as a 10-year-old, I didn't quite know how to process. It took me a long time. And it's still to this day something that defines a part of me in terms of how I trust people. Because um, I'm always expecting the worst. In my mind, this awesome guy that I knew that it, I had on a pedestal, I'd never expected something like that from him. And if he was capable of doing something like that, then anyone is capable of anything. So it defines a lot of my relationships. Um, it defines how I limit the trust that I give out to people. Uh, up until that time in my life, I had only de dealt with natural death. Like my grandmother passed away um, and my grandfather had passed away, but he was young and he was happy and he was successful and and he was all of these things. And, and then we had this tragedy and we were in the newspapers and the whole town was talking about our family. And I, I, I didn't know how to process that as a child. I remember I was in fourth grade and there was one day where we were in, our, we were in the classroom and I just had this like turmoil, emotional turmoil. And my teacher looked at me and she goes, what is going on? And I remember running from one end of the classroom to the other end and just hugging her like I just needed to let it all out. And I didn't realize it in that moment, but all my classmates were looking at me and they were all asking what's going on what's going on and i'm just crying at the top of my lungs like this is what happened and they're all hearing this and she's trying to get me out of the classroom you know so that moment is a very defining moment in my life and it wasn't the end of turmoil in my childhood either um a lot more happened after that but that one moment has defined a lot of my relationships um in life even now as a 40 year old and that happened when I was 10. So it took me a long time to realize that I needed to process that. And it wasn't until after I was in the military that I started getting the proper treatment that I needed. Um, I grew up in, a, in an okay financially place, but we didn't really have the money for me to go to therapy every week, you know. So in the military, I was able to explore that and dig deep and find out why did it affect me so much. And and how I can overcome these things. Um, I, have, I have a couple questions for you. I mean, 
Well, you know, I'm first of all, I'm a visual person. And so in my mind, I can picture you at 10 years old running across the room. And, and for me, that's just, it's a painful thing to envision. And then I think about you hugging your teacher. And what I think about is after tragedy, after experiencing trauma, there needs to be some point in time where you feel safe in your own skin. Mm-hmm. And that may have been the the closest thing that you could find, you know, mm-hmm. at the time in your life. Um, yes. So what, what I'm wondering, what, what I really like to talk about is how we process these emotions in our perspective of, of ourselves and our lives. And so what I'm wondering is, and, and I don't know if you can really, I don't know, I'll just ask a question. How do you feel that your perspective of yourself or your world really changed from the, like the time you were nine years old to the time you were 11 or 12? So up until that moment where that tragedy happened, I was used to the screaming and the yelling and the breaking of plates and glasses and windows and, and fights and all of that. I was used to it, but it had become normal in my life. So yes, it was and like, it interrupted my everyday life, but I never thought I was in real danger. And then when my uncle did what he did, suddenly the possibility of me as a human being hurt by another human in a way that could end my life was very real. So all of my safety disappeared. Like the ability of me, like making myself feel safe was gone because what he did meant that anyone can take your safety from you. Anyone can snap at any matter how normal they seem in everyday life. So my whole sense of security and safety was gone. It like, it really was a defining moment in my life. So was there, was there points after this defining moment where you were able to actually just have conversations about how you felt over the next couple of years? As a child? Yes. No. No, and i tell you why, especially in the Latino community. Like, as a child, you're supposed to be seen and not heard. Um, children don't really this way adults think children don't really understand. So everybody was talking around the subject around me. And I see the adults having these conversations and whispering and doing things, but nobody's asking me how I felt about it. Nobody asked me, nobody had a conversation with me to say, Hey, your uncle was having some trouble and he just didn't find the the right way to go about it. Like nobody had this conversation with me. It went from something where we're getting interviewed by newspapers. The police is showing up at my house. The adults whisper about it to let's not talk about it. Let's just put it in the past. So as a child, I kept going with all these insecurities, questions, doubts, and things that you just were never explained to me. Feelings that I never even understood until I was an adult. So, 
So during this this period, and and, and again, I'm looking more like from like the divorce and the incident with your uncle from that point in time until you were say 12, 13, something like that, right? Like in the elementary school years to around the middle school years. How did you feel about yourself? Like specifically in terms of self-esteem or self-love or self-worth? So, oh, that's an interesting question because it introduced me to an idea that I didn't know about. So, and I'll, I'll explain what that means. I had all, I already had anxiety because of the environment that I grew up in was very turbulent. I had anxiety. I had a lot of depressive uh, episodes in my life, but then when that happened, it introduced me to suicide. I didn't know that was an option, right? For me, living the life that I was living, that's what my life was. And I just had to deal with it and either ignore my anxiety or entertain it. But when my uncle did what he did, it showed me that if you don't like your life, you can just kill yourself. So from 10 until 15, I had one suicide attempt. And I entertained that possibility many times because I thought, oh, if I don't like my life, maybe I can just end it too. My uncle did it. So it really changed how I view how I could deal with my own anxieties and my own depression and my own problems. It gave me a solution that wasn't really a solution. And I know that now, but it was an idea that I had never entertained before that. So 10 to 15 was really hard for me. So a lot of times when we're looking at suicide data, we talk about there's completed suicide, suicide attempts, and suicide ideations as if a suicidal ideation is a singular event. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like you're answering the question before I ask it, but so, so can, can being, can being, suicidal almost be like a mindset yeah yeah it is it's an idea that it's once it's introduced you have to fight against it constantly you have to literally talk to yourself and talk yourself out of it it's just there it's like i don't know like in the in the deepest darkest moments it it does feel like a solution and it does take outside help and it for it takes you saying i'm having these thoughts to someone else so that that person can check you and say wait a minute this is we need to address this because if you never let it out then you can just go down that negative spiral really quickly but it's there it's there all the time for a lot of people who deal with that, it there's there's so many ways of dealing with it, right? Like there are people who can bury it and they are they seem like the absolute best at everything. And what I mean by that is is I mean three come to mind right away. Um Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, and Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. So many people are are miserable and wish that they could live 
like Anthony Bourdain. Um, and then there are other people who are in that mindset who they, they wear their misery on their sleeve. Like everywhere they go, you can feel it. Yeah. And so what I'm wondering is how did you essentially exist? Like which of those most closely relates to how you existed in society? Like were you the one that was always miserable or, or were you the fake it and smile type? Like how did you how did you survive? How did you deal? Which one do you think I was? <laughs> I, I have no idea. I just know if I was there with you, we would have we would have shared a lot of pizza. So, but yeah, I would have helped. No, I was definitely the fake it and smile. Every time, I remember having a conversation with one of my counselors when I was in high school, and crying about my identification in school, my photo ID card. Because I was smiling and so happy in the photo, but I kept saying to her, why? Why do I always look like I am happy, but I never feel like it? Everywhere I go, yeah, you guys think I'm so happy, I'm always smiling, I'm so fun to be around. But when I am not here with you, I am miserable. I am contemplating suicide. Like, I remember having this conversation with a counselor and she asked me, she was like, so you're complaining to me about your smile in your photo? And I was like, no, you're not understanding. I'm not complaining about the smile in the photo. I'm complaining about the fact that I keep hiding my sadness, that I don't know how to show it. That in Latino community, in Puerto Rico, in the 1990s, being depressed was not acceptable. It was not something that people like to talk about. They would just say, oh, she's crazy. That's it. That's the label I would have gotten. She's crazy. Oh, she has issues. You know, so in order to avoid that further stigma on me and my family, I had to fake it. I had to be successful. I had to be the best I could be in school. I had to earn the excellence awards in English and in this. And, in, and I had to be the leader of whatever because I didn't want to disappoint my mom. And I didn't want all these things to be on top of the fact that I'm already sad. You know, so... Make it till I make it. That's how I got through my teenage years. Yeah. So kind of a sidebar real quick is you mentioned Puerto Rico. So just real quick for the audience, where where were you going to high school? Where did all this happen? So I went to, um, I was in the, uh, lived in the West Coast of Puerto Rico. And I went to a private school up until like ninth grade. And then I went to public school in 10th grade. I begged my mom to take me out of the private school. Um, and then I went to public school from 10th to 12th and graduated from there. Then I went to the University of Puerto Rico. Okay, thank you. Um, so you talk about this, this time period from the age of 10 to 15, where you were kind of in a constant, predominantly low-grade version of suicidality. Mm -hmm. You spoke to the counselor. That did not seem as though it started the healing journey very well. Mm -mm. Um. So during that time, what did you actually do for you? Like, what did you do that you just liked doing for you? That would make me feel better. I wrote, oh my God, I wrote, I have so much poetry from that time. I have, I still have journals and notebooks 
I have so many journals from that time. I would write in English. I would write in Spanish. I would draw. I would stay up in the middle of the night and just imagine. Um, I wanted to be a civil engineer and I wanted to build houses. So I would stay up and like draw these beautiful houses and imagine that I could build them. Um, but yeah, my and then I, I was also taking guitar lessons. Um, I started at like maybe 13 or 14 years old. I started playing guitar and um, yeah, it was those creative outlets that helped to get the emotion out. Um, and it was, it was a good way for me to let the energy be somewhere. It would be in my poetry, it would be in my art, it would be in my music. That's how I was able to get the emotion because nothing else was helping. My counselors at school didn't really have the time to dedicate that I needed, you know, and, and we didn't go, I didn't go to therapy. Uh, so it was creativity what really got me through those years. So, so during those years, of, I mean, first of all, like I'm, I'm grateful, like just what you're saying now I'm grateful for art. I'm grateful for music, you know, because it was your outlet. But I know that there's literally millions of people that can relate to that, mm. whether they were suicidal or they just had a bad day at work. Yeah, it's, it's an ability. It's the ability or the opportunity to just kind of dig into who you really are. Like when we get rid of all the other stuff, paychecks, bills, significant other, get rid of all of that stuff. Deep down inside, you're thinking I'm a creative mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm just going to dig into this. As you were going through that during those those years, kind of overall, what was your relationship like with with any family members that you care to share about? Regarding how I was feeling? Yeah, just just your relationship, for example, what was your relationship like with your mom or dad or anyone else? Like, did you have good or bad, volatile, invisible? How would you describe it? Oh, wow. Um, it was definitely volatile with my mom. And uh, I'm going to say invisible with my dad. My dad didn't really spend a lot of time with me um, after in my teenage years. He didn't really spend a lot of time with me. Um, I actually started looking for people uh, subconsciously. I, I started looking for people to attach myself to. So like my boyfriend at that time, when I was 15, I became really attached to his family because in my mind, his family was a working family structured and, and like they, they really liked me and I wanted to spend as much time as possible with them. So I think like, I just wanted to attach myself to a functional family unit. And I didn't really spend that much time with my mom or my dad. I would leave school and go to my boyfriend's house and spend time with his family. And if I had to, at that time, go to church, I would go with his family. If we had a party to go to for the community, I would go with his family. I tried to escape my own family as much as I could. And I have come to regret that at times because it really created a wedge between me and my mom for a long time. But I don't know if that's just something that I needed at that time just to make it through. You know what I mean? Like I try to forgive myself for it, but I don't know. I, I mean, I would say 
you know, at the time, if you could go back and speak to your younger self at that time, and if you were just able to ask her, what are your options? Yeah. You would find that she felt she didn't have many options. So you did the best you could. And what we learn, you know, even subconsciously at the youngest ages, we learn how we survived. And so there are things that you will do now that you don't know why you did it, but yeah. your brain thinks, and I mean, it sounds cliche, right? But your brain thinks, well, at least I didn't die. Yeah. And, and so I think that for a lot of us, we have to remember our mindset, our perspective, our knowledge at the time that we did something is not what it is today. And that should be the foundation of us perceiving or, or viewing if we should be forgiven or how to forgive ourselves. Yeah. Because, because all of the knowledge and experience you have now, I mean, you know, simply put, when you were 15, you had not read any Brene Brown books when you were 15. <laughs> you know, there, you didn't look at any emotional intelligence videos on YouTube no. when you were 15. And so I think for a lot of people, it's, it's difficult. And I think it's very powerful for you to say, you did this to survive, mm -hmm. but you look back now with some regret. Yeah. And it's funny because I have done some therapy in which my therapist basically put me in a like um i want to say like a hypnotic state and helped me see my younger self and like emotionally hug my younger self and tell her you know it's okay and and we would concentrate in tiny small valerie in her room alone in the house crying at night you know and i what would i say would you give her a hug would you give her a kiss would you touch her hair and tell her that it's okay. And it was a very difficult therapy to go through, but I had to do it in order to forgive that part of myself that didn't know that it was okay to break down. You know, like I did what I could as a child to survive. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can imagine the difficulty of doing that, right? Yeah. Because you, you know what you know. And so it's hard to excuse yourself for not knowing that when you were 15. But the truth of the matter is in certain parts of your brain, there's, there's no way to tell time. And so like certain parts of your brain doesn't know the trauma was two weeks ago or 20 years ago. Mm. And that's why it's effective when you can go back to that time in your mind in a hypnotic state and give yourself your younger self a hug and to say to your younger self, you did the best you could. I love you. I forgive you. Yeah. It's hard, but it's necessary. It's so hard. It's so hard. And just thinking about it makes me choked up because it, it is really hard. And I still think even after all the therapy I've done, there is a part of me that prefers not to think about my childhood, even though I've tried so hard and I've done so much work to be able to be okay with the person that I am. There's a part of me that decides to start my life in 2002 when I joined the Air Force and forget about everything else before. So I have to constantly keep that in mind too. Like, no, bring your whole Valerie, not just the last 20 years of Valerie, you know? I don't know, it's really hard. So what about what about relationships with other people? Are there, are there people from your past that you feel like, um, 
from your experiences, you've been able to forgive them or you're still working on that? Why you gotta ask all the hard questions? Like, we, we can skip it. This is like a test. You can skip the questions you don't like. No. And as long as you score high enough, it, the skip ones don't matter. We can skip <laughs> it. You can like lower the curve. Um, <laughs> no, I'm still working. Okay. Some people. But I have more empathy now. Now that I know about emotional intelligence and how people react to trauma and how people react to the situations that they're in, I am more forgiving because of the fact that I understand how the brain works. So like, and I can, I can probably say this because I know my mom will never watch this. And if she watches this, she won't understand it because she doesn't speak English. But there was a point in the last five years in, in the middle of some very intensive therapy that I was doing that I had to come to the realization that I have to forgive my mom. Like no matter what level of relationship we have right now, and we have a good relationship. I talk to her almost every single day. I love spending time with her. But I had to come to the realization that I have to forgive her because she did the best she could in her situation. And she, the way that she learned how to deal with her difficult life is what she learned from her parents. And her parents lived in an even worse situation. So she learned her coping strategies from people that didn't have coping strategies. And those were the coping strategies that she passed on to me. And that's how I survived. So I had to do the work during therapy to learn all these things. Why did she allow these things to happen? Why did she stay in that marriage? Why did she not take me and take me somewhere safe? And now I know as an adult woman that has gone through a lot of therapy, I know that my mother did the absolute best that she could to survive herself. You know, like, and that makes it so much easier to forget, not, I mean, not forget, forgive, to forgive some of the things that I went through because I can't judge her. She did emotional intelligence was not something that people talked about in 1985. Like it, it wasn't empathy. I don't think I heard that word until the last maybe six or seven years. So it wasn't something that somebody could have come to my mom and said, well, you're not practicing gratitude. You're not being self-aware and controlling your emotions. My mom survived. So it's easier for me now to look back and, and think, you know what? She went through a lot and she did the best she could to make sure that I came out unscathed. So I can't judge her so harshly for it, but it's a process. Um, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love, I love you talking about empathy because when we think about empathy and what, what empathy really is, we talk about being able to see things from someone else's perspective, right? And, and the one thing Brene Brown talks about is being able to relate to the emotion of the event. Yeah. But when we look at some people, for example, what your mother may have gone through when she was in her 20s, empathy can be hard because I can tell you that, although I obviously wasn't there, I don't know what she went through in her 20s, but I guarantee you that I probably have not felt the emotions that she felt in her 20s. 
I didn't experience what she experienced. And so empathy only goes so far in certain situations. And then when you can't go any further with it, and, and I say you can't go any further, meaning that you can't relate to that emotion because the experience is so powerful in their life, then you have to be okay with the gap. You have to be okay with saying, I don't understand that, but it's okay. Yeah. So yeah. what, what I want to ask you about your mom, just based on everything you said, I feel like, is there a certain part of you that is kind of proud of her for being strong and surviving? Like, oh, yeah. My mom, my mom did it. Absolutely. As a woman, as, as a Latina, <laughs> adult woman, <laughs> I am very proud. She she was swimming against the current her, for all of her 30s and pretty much all of her 40s. And I am now at an age, I am the age that I best remember my mom. You know, I'm 40 and when she was 40, that's my most clear memories of her during that time. So like, I can understand that if I was in the situation that she was at that time, I I can justify some of her actions too. So it's, yeah, I'm proud of her for, for going through a lot and not breaking, I should add. Yeah. That's, that's very powerful. I'm going to breathe that one out. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, you know, I, I just love that because I feel like that is, that is really the essence of empathy, right? So, okay, you went through this when you were 40 and it was hard. And now that I'm 40, mm -hmm. I can understand just what it's like to exist as a 40-year-old Puerto Rican woman. We're not even talking about experiences, just to exist with that. And now you know how that feels. And so for you to say, yeah, you did some, you did some crazy things, whatever, but I'm proud of you and I know you did the best you could is very powerful. And I honestly think that more of us need to practice that. Yeah. We need to practice that. And then, so you can say, that forgiveness is hard. You can say there's regret and you can say that you're proud of her. And I feel like when you say all of those things, you feel them all at the same time. That demonstrates that this whole thing is a process. Oh my God, absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a fast one either. Yeah. Like which and, and sucks I, in a way because we never know how much time we have, right? So like, what if, if I take my sweet time trying to forget forgive my mom. She didn't even know that I'm trying to forgive her for something. And what if something happens and I never get to that point where I'm able to say to her, I forgive you for all this stuff that we went through, you know? It sucks. Yeah, I completely feel what you're saying. But then there's another part of me that wants to remind you that you forgiving her is for you as well. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> And, and, and then there's and then there's part part of it where it's just like regardless of how far you get like running a marathon if someone quits after 18 or 19 miles they might feel bad for not finishing and the rest of us are like wow you did 18 miles right <laughs> it's about that perspective you know i mean i don't know if you've ever heard somebody say 
I only ran 20 miles. <laughs> but it's, it's perspective. It's perspective. And when you're talking about yourself, you have to remember to give yourself credit for those 18 miles. Give yourself credit for the effort that's gotten you this far in the journey. Yeah. You know. And it's it remember though when you're in it. Yeah. People like you reminding us all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like there's certain things you go through, right? And you see this in military when people are talking about when you're in combat or you know, self-aid buddy care, all that stuff, right? Your chem gear, all that stuff. And people say your training will kick in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, what if it doesn't? Hmm. You know, and so the mindset that you have to be after the fact is to say, well, I did the best that I could and I'm not going to judge myself because if I did the best I could and I put in real effort, I deserve credit for that. And I should not judge myself as having less value or less quality than before the incident occurred. Yeah. And so when you're able to, to do that, then you, you kind of set yourself up to forgive yourself. It, it gets a little easier when you remember your values, your heart, your character, and your effort, as opposed to focusing on your results. It's just a hard process to do by yourself. Yeah. Like, I think one of the main things that we're not saying is that you need to ask for help, right? So like all of those things that you just said are so important, but there's no way that I would have been able to do all of them by myself. Determine where I need to process, how I need to process, what time to give myself to process, and then give myself grace during that process. Like, no, it takes outside influence. It takes people like you. It takes people like my therapist. And all, all of that input needs to be coming in because I'm constantly fighting that thought process of I'm not enough. I don't deserve that. I probably got the childhood that I deserved. Those are the thoughts go going through my mind. Right. But when I have people like you in my life or my therapist that keep reminding me of that, then I'm able to go through that mental roadblock and go on the other side and say, oh, OK, yes, I do need to remind myself of that. Yes, I do need to give myself grace. But for someone that's trying to do it by themselves, someone that doesn't have the resources. Oh, I don't I don't know how people do it without it, you know. I just want to I just want to complete the circle here so people understand. I mean, you're talking about how I've helped you and I've supported you. And I'm grateful for every every conversation we've ever had. But I will say that so much of our conversations where I've been able to support you really with my heart, I've talked to you about things that I've learned about emotional intelligence and shame and guilt and vulnerability. And I never considered those concepts until you told me about them. <laughs> so, so ironic. <laughs> so I just I want to put that out there. And then what I want to do is is fast forward to the good part, right? And so we talked so much about your childhood and growing up and all of these things, but from the time you joined the Air Force to right now, you've grown you've become powerful, you've learned to love yourself, and you have a lot going on right now. So I want to talk about that growth journey and how you just got from there to where you are now. Right. So that's a very long journey. But yes, um, I have 
I have become a more tolerant person with myself. I do know how to be with myself now. I know how to love myself. I know how to identify what I need, right? So like self-care, I know that when I start feeling a certain way, I know what's missing. And usually it's the creative part of me. Like if I get if I get too involved in work in the technical part of job, the job in in the Air Force part of the Air Force and I keep forgetting to let my emotions out, whether music or art or any of the other creative pursuits that I have, dancing. If I like deny those parts of myself, then I start losing myself. And that was really like emotional. When I started learning about emotional intelligence and learning my strengths um, with the VIA survey, which I don't know if you've talked about that before, but identifying what my strengths are and what I am good at that's really what got me to the place where I can say, I'm feeling this way. Maybe I need to engage in this strength. Maybe I need to do more of this creative pursuit, appreciation of beauty or love of learning. Those are my strengths, right? Or humor, right? So like, maybe I need to call Charles and laugh for a little bit this week. Like once I learned how to identify all the parts of me, that's when I really started getting comfortable with myself and then gratitude. like. Gratitude has made, like, I don't even know the English word to describe the the level of positive change that gratitude has brought to my life. So once I really got serious about a gratitude practice, that's when I started feeling the biological effects of it, right? So we, we say that gratitude helps you focus on the positive because your brain is biologically wired to focus on the negative and help you survive, right? So your brain helps you identify the threats. But in this day and age, the threats are not lions that are trying to eat us. They're just podcasts that make me nervous or like public speaking, all of those things. So practicing gratitude every day really, really made a difference. And that's why I'm able to take better care of myself now is because I know myself better. I, I love that. I love that when we talk about emotional intelligence, a lot of people talk about emotional intelligence as, as like a singular item, mm -hmm. not recognizing how deep it is and, and how all encompassing emotional intelligence can be. And so the first domain is self-awareness and that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah getting to know yourself, identify who you really are, knowing your strengths. And you mentioned the, the VIA Signature Survey. So for those who are not familiar, um, VIA stands for Values in Action. And so I love that you brought that up because you said, you know, identifying your strengths and then go doing them. That's the inaction part of it. Yeah. And it's not the inaction part. Like I'm going to take action and immediately get this result. What you said was practice. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I love, the way that you put it all together, because you realize, yeah, you, you've had help and you've had support along the way. And the truth is nobody really met, meets any kind of success without some level of support. Right. But deep down inside, you don't even know what to ask for. You don't even know what you need if you lack self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And so you had to dig through that so that you could say, this is what I need in the moment. And I, and I love that. And that's why, like, I've said this to you many times, your 
an example to other people. Like this, this is how it's done. But I think it was out of necessity too, yes. because the the thing about mental health care in our country, sadly, is that it is, I'm going to throw a wild number here. I'm going to venture to say that mental health care in the U.S. is 90% reactive, right? So like people don't go looking for help until they've had a crisis. They don't get forced into help until they've had a crisis. So for me, I got tired of waiting for the crisis to happen so that then I could go get help. And the thing that you need to do is maintenance. When we talk about self-care, it needs to be maintenance. So it needs to be constant. And in order to do that, you need to know how to get through every single day not just the hard ones. And a way to get through a good day is practicing gratitude at the end. And if you make that a habit, then it starts changing other things. And it all kind of like, it all fits together. So self-care as maintenance is more important than self-care. I don't want to say more important, but it's just as important as self-care after crisis. And we are not used to that in this country. We're used to going and asking for help only after we've broken down. Right. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And and that goes back to when I was having trouble trouble identifying the gap between resilience and suicide prevention because when someone is suicidal, that is not the time to say name three things you're grateful for. I practice gratitude. <laughs> yeah, well, have you been, have you been practicing gratitude? And so it's well, what is there in between? And that's what emotional intelligence is. It's that self-awareness. And that maintenance, like you said, because practicing part of practicing gratitude, you know, I compare it to like basketball, right? You you don't just wake up and decide to be good. You wake up and decide to practice. Practice. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so with gratitude, you're, you don't just wake up and say, I am a grateful person. You can say that. But deep down, you can be filling out your gratitude journal thinking this is stupid. Why am I doing it? So there has to be a mindset shift. Right. And that's the practice. Yeah. And then the funny thing is that you say that, but it's so true. Like when I started practicing gratitude, I set out to prove myself right. Like I thought this is not going to help me. This is stupid. I'm going to do it, but it's stupid and it's not going to help. So I set out to that gratitude practice to prove my point that it was stupid and it wouldn't help. And like, <laughs> it's funny <laughs> because in my journal, I have gratitude uh i think i wrote gratitude number 54 because i was numbering them every time i would write my gratitude out i would number number one number two and i think it was like 50 something where when i was writing my gratitude and it was probably something like i'm grateful for the funnions i ate today <laughs> i was like oh i really am grateful for this like I'm not faking it anymore. I'm I'm actually feeling the grateful feeling. So, I mean, I put myself wrong, but whatever. <laughs> it worked. That's the important I, part. I love it. I love it because really, really, what's happening is you're spending time, you're putting energy towards gratitude, and you can't be grateful and angry at the same time. Yeah. You can't be full of gratitude and full of fear at the same time. So the more often you're grateful, the less time that you are afraid. And then your brain begins to realize there's no imminent threat. I can relax. 
works. Mm-hmm. Not only that, my brain started to look for things during the day to write in my gratitude journal. So I, there was a moment where I noticed myself during the day thinking, oh, I could put this in my gratitude journal tonight. And that's when I realized this is what a gratitude feeling feels like when my brain did that. And I had never felt that before. I love, I love that. I absolutely love it. That's so beautiful. Because I mean, that's exactly what it, it was. It was a total mindset shift, more like a transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and then you think about, so all of the things that you've been through, all the things that we talked about in those moments, you weren't thinking about that because you had a, a grateful mindset. Yeah. And so that that's the foundation of you moving forward. And now we know that like your art is an expression of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so now with that mindset shift, that transformation, but still understanding who you really are, like you've never lost sight of, of who you are, what you've been through. No. But you're so much more able to dig into your creativity. And so what I want is, I, I just want to talk about your art for a minute or let you talk about it because I'm not, I'm not an artist. <laughs> so you can talk about it. Well, my art is really nothing special. My art is for me. My art is to nurture myself, right? Like, I'm not trying to be Picasso here. I really am not. But it makes me feel better when I do it. When I pick up this guitar that I have been playing for 25 years and I still suck at it, I enjoy it while I do it. Like, I am not trying to get a record deal. I'm not doing any of that. But being able to play a chord being able to take an amazing photograph or paint something that may not even look good, the process for me is incredibly important. That taking the time, first of all, recognizing that I need to take time for a creative pursuit, then selecting like what what creative outlet am I going to use today? Is it going to be music? Is it going to be painting? Is it going to be photo? Am I going to write a poem? What am I going to do? Like that process of deciding how I'm going to express what I am feeling in that moment heals me just as much as the art that I am creating. So it's not really about the art for me. It's more about the process. And I think for a lot of people, it stops them from using art as a creative healing method because they're worried about the product. They're worried about, I don't know how to draw. I don't know how to paint. I can't play a song. But they're not thinking that in the process of creating something that may not be good, they'll feel better. So, do you know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? It it makes, well, it makes perfect sense to me. And what I'm thinking is, is that there's so many people out there who, I mean, they're going through all different kinds of crises, right? They've experienced so much trauma. And what they've also done they've taken anti-anxiety medicines, they've taken antidepressants and they've had talk therapy and they felt like none of it worked. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yes, we're here. <laughs> and there's, and so then for a lot of those people, they wonder about art as healing or art therapy or something else like equine therapy. Yeah. And they're it. curious. So what would you say to those people that are, are kind of on the edge? Should I try it or not? I say absolutely. Absolutely try it. Try it because you never know what is going to work. And what's the like what's the worst that could happen? That you make a bad painting? Uh, okay. 
then throw it out and try something new. Like, just don't be afraid of the process because there is, I believe in energy. Like I believe emotions are energy. I really do. And that energy needs to come out. Right. So like, just like when we're feeling nervous before doing something, that nervous energy needs to come out. So go for a walk, maybe do some push-ups, paint something, write something. I don't know, get the energy out in the same way, emotional energy, like sadness or happiness or excitement, all of those things, they work the same way. It's just energy that needs to come out. So what, for me, what better harmless way than to put it into art? Art saved my life. It really did. And uh, I, I highly believe that writing, poetry, photography, music, visual arts, they all have so much to offer for emotional healing that I, I, I'm a proponent of it for therapy as like a normal thing that happens in the United States. Uh, we're far away from that, but I keep trying to get the word out. Yeah. I love when you talk about emotion as energy, because I think about we, we say things to express that all the time and we don't even realize it. What I mean by that is we say things like, I'm emotionally stuck. Mm -hmm. Well, does that mean that the emotion should be on the move? Yeah. Right? Because, and, I mean, right, there's energy is, is movement. It has it has to move, right? There's potential yeah. kinetic energy, all of that stuff. And then we also say things like, oh, that was like a, a punch in the gut. That's like a pain in the neck. That was heavy on my heart. Mm -hmm. and, and it goes to show that energy is more than just, I mean, emotions are more than just in your head. Oh, no, no, no. They're everywhere. The body keeps the score, right? Like yes. you will, your body will remember how something felt. Even if you've forgotten the actual details of the moment, your body will react to it. So like when I get on 95 and 495, my body knows what stress feels like. It remembers right away. So, and, and you know, I say that just to keep the mood light, but when someone goes to a very traumatic physical experience, the body will remember and it will trigger certain emotions that if they are not dealt with in the appropriate ways through therapy or what else have you, the body will remember and it affects everything because then it, you get reactions in other parts of your body, right? Like, so you might be emotionally um, just, what's the word? Like you, if the emotion might overtake you, but your body will start reacting to it and your body will start breaking down. And if you don't deal with that and let out the expression for the emotion and then take care of your body, forget it. You're going to be a mess forever. Yes. It's very true. You remind me of, of um, a doctor I once had, he was a rheumatologist and we were talking about mental health. And then he showed me this research article correlating adverse childhood experiences within women and endometriosis as a, as adults. Mm. And wow. I was like, wow, like that's, that's exactly what you're talking about right now. Like the energy is stored. And what you're saying is yeah, the negative energy is stored in the body. The body remembers. And what you're saying is go do something about it. Go move your body. Yep. And I love that because, because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, is. Well, I want to I wrap this up. Actually, I don't. I'd like to keep going for another hour, but <laughs> I, I, 
I believe that's not an option right now. I'm so grateful, so grateful to spend this time with you and for you to share your story. Um, you've been just a, a great friend and inspiration to me this, you know, since I met you from, from day one. And I really believe that a lot of what you said today can really impact so many people. So I'm grateful for you. Um, is there anything that you would like to say last message that you think people need to hear? I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. I am very grateful that you're my friend. You keep saying that you've learned from me, but I think I've learned more, more from you. Or maybe just it's a symbiotic relationship that mental, yes. you challenge me intellectually and emotionally, and I love it. Um, but I think if I had to say something to someone that is going through something that they don't know how to get out of it, I would say, just don't be afraid. It, it's going to hurt for a little bit while you process. But when, when you come out on the other side, you will be so much more in love with yourself. Like I, I just, I love the person that I am now and I could not be this person without that stuff that I went through, but it took time to get here. So just don't be afraid of the process. And if one thing doesn't work, don't give up. If, if CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work, then try EMDR or try music or try riding horses or try art or try something, but do something for yourself because it's worth it. The process is hard. Nobody's lying about that, but being the best you and loving the best you, it's just so much more worth it than not. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. So on that note, I'm going to, um, we're going to end this broadcast and I just want to say thank you. And thank you to everyone who tuned in and watched and listened and everyone who's watching on the replay. I appreciate you. And also be sure to um, catch us on YouTube. All of these podcast interviews are on my YouTube channel, Cope Life Podcast. So again, thank you very much. And I will see all of you next Friday. Thank you.